Hey, let's pray. Let's go. Thanks for coming to church on a holiday weekend. It's good to see you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, keep us in your grace, ever your children. Amen. Uh, good to see you. Um, somebody observed that I no longer make announcements. Well, I mean, I don't have much to say, as you know. So, uh, no, there's a, lot, there's a lot cooking, but I just, you know, there's a lot cooking here, too. So a couple of things. Uh, it's been a very interesting couple of weeks here. Pray for Pastor Nelson. He's busy. He, he went to, uh, he and John Crow went to Estonia and Latvia to do some mission work, support some missionaries, negotiate with the archbishop about taking our kids there and bringing him here to care for pastors. He might step in as the new client, so we're kind of working on that. But he comes home on Thursday. I don't even see him. I come early for Eucharist on Friday morning, he's jumping into a van with a bunch of teenagers to go to Arcadia. This shows you his mental state. He's not, he's not stable, and so you should you know, pray for him. No, he's absorbing all these things as we go, and it's, it's very, very nice. Uh, you should tend your giving. You're so fascinating. If anybody wants to do an economics PhD, you could do it on the giving at St. John with the cycles of the stock market. Almost none of you are, are trading derivatives to fund your, um, you know, your plate giving, I don't think. But if you are, I'd be, like to be in on it. So, um, but it's so interesting how, the, with the stock market going up and down, how people's giving goes up and down. So tend your giving, because you know, it's not what it was last year, but it's sort of interesting how things work out. So just, just kind of pay attention to that. Uh, then, um, pastors are gone this week, so there's not joy group, in case joy groupers haven't heard that, because we don't have enough people. Vickers away preaching for Fred Gady today, and, um, all the pastors have to be at mandatory conferences. Pastor Kendall's teaching at one, and the rest of us are going to another one. So um, it's a little bit of a quiet week. You can always get us on cell phones. And then just a note about my outlines, which continue to get longer and longer. I have a lot to say, okay? But um, just how you use an outline. So occasionally somebody will call and say, hey, you didn't say this. And then I'm like, I know that's the reason I gave you an outline. <laughs> So, uh, you know, the worst thing would be if I read it to you, uh, but there's, you know, there's, 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 the outline is there basically so you don't have to take notes. You can just sort of be a human being and we can talk about things. Of course, I don't ever let you talk about things, but we can still pretend like that we have that kind of relationship, okay? Yeah, you don't think that's funny. Okay, I'm laughing inside. Okay, so here's where we've been, right? You should go to church. Why should you go to church? You should go to church because Jesus lives there and he gives out holy things. This is good for you because all the holy people will be in heaven. It's fabulous. Without, uh, you know, the, the, the only problem is, is you, uh, you haven't met that many people who are holy, none on their own. And so you go to church to get this holy touch of Jesus. Now in between, um, some of you, and this happens as you get older often, but sometimes it's any young person, get quite concerned about your death. So one of the things that going to church helps you with is not only to understand what holiness is, but then also to see, even though you die in his inscrutable but beautiful ways, the Lord has bundled up death as a way to bring you back to life forever. And so what you're meant for is the bliss of <coughs> sitting in God's presence, being before the face of God, forever and ever, amen. It is fabulous. And so if you're a bit scared by your death, you say, well, um, that's understandable. But then you say, then there's the next thing. 
And you can only go from here to there, um, from kind of lesser to greater, um, in the threshold of death. So it's all going to be okay. And uh, knowing that, you still shouldn't waste time now. Because there's a great joy in living in holiness, right? And you know what holiness is. It's revealed in the Ten Commandments. It's revealed in the person of Christ. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit and scriptures. But the best possible life is to live in holiness. And so, you know, you come to church every week to have Jesus touch, which like the lepers in the story today, you know, he talks to them or he touches them um, and they come back to life. And so for you too, the gift is that you would come back to life and that your life would actually matter. See, so this is, why, this is where we've been. You know, the Lord wants you with him forever. He'll join you in church and show you the way. That was the road to Emmaus. Along the way, he'll explain some things to you, why you shouldn't fear and you shouldn't, should love, why you shouldn't be proud and why humility is a good thing for you. That's what we'll do today. And eventually, um, you'll kick along and find out that everything is going to be all right. And so, um, you know, that's where we hope to go. But there really is just so much to say about that. So, here we go. Um, kind of at point number one, right? Now, I should have. Uh, I was trying to... So, you know, I have a PhD in systematic theology. I like my ducks to be in a row, right? Uh, so, I w now, reflecting on this this morning very early, I was like, ah, after obedience, I penned in the word joy. So, you know, if you don't get anything else, this is the existential, this is your experience of life, or it can be your experience of life, which is Jesus loves you and that love resurrects you. And you always keep that in mind, right? That's the reason there's a crucifix there. That's the Pieta from last week, right? The, the, you keep in mind that Jesus dies for you. He's tipping into your lap. He walks along with you. So Jesus loves you and he resurrects you and you always remember that. And when you remember that, it keeps you from thinking you're all that, right? It reminds you that you're always dependent. And when you realize you're a dependent person, you're a different kind of person than when you're a proud person who thinks you're independent. You know, all of America can be analyzed in this way now. People who are given to independence and power, and by the way, they're happy to tell you they're far smarter than you are. Um, you know, you kind of go, what? You, you just want to kind of go. I'm, I'm just surprised that, I, you know, I, I read scads of stuff all week long from all sorts of people purportedly very smart and the condescension with which they talk to me. You know, I sort of want to go, and the thing, when I read it, I go, well, that's not right. Not even true, not even factual. You just kind of go. If it, a bit of humility toward being dependent. You were dead, now you're alive. You were lost, now you're found. You should always remember that. And if you remember that, then your life will be different and you'll live not only with thanks, but with obedience. You'll say, Jesus loves me, and I'm very grateful for that. And he showed me what holiness is, and so I'll walk with him, I'll follow him. The simplest words of Jesus, come, follow me. How he talks to every disciple, come, follow me, three words. So you follow along, and you will find across the course of long life that doing what is holy, following Jesus, remembering the Eucharist, living in forgiveness, doing the right thing, 
living in humility. Six ways of saying the same thing. Follow Jesus and you'll find your life will be hopeful and joyful even, and this is where we'll go out in a few weeks, even in the midst of suffering. I've been reflecting lately quite a lot about how everybody suffers, but nobody actually ever taught me to suffer. It's very interesting. There's kind of a skill in suffering, and we need to talk about that maybe for a couple of weeks because you would think that suffering would invalidate all this. Not at all. You know, this goes on in spite of the suffering or even simultaneously with the suffering. And so you can go to your death with great joy, right? Because you know the end game is fabulous. So I'm trying to bump you into this line where you'll think about your life in a particular way, no matter how anybody else thinks, you'll think this way. And in some ways, you'll relativize your own life or compare your own life against heaven. And so it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. You, you walk with Jesus. It doesn't matter what you're suffering. You walk with Jesus. It doesn't matter, you know, is, you, know, you know, if the United States collapses, it's okay. On to the next thing, right? Check yourself even about how America's become a God even for godly people. Kind of times you go to go, it's a relatively new deal, right? A couple of hundred years. The Lord has been around a long time and he's seen Christians far better than me through things far worse and it's all going to be all right. So, um, you know, hope and then and joy. So now I give you this um, first quote, right? Humility is the only virtue, virtue no demon can imitate. So. Uh, you know, this in scriptures, angels of darkness appear as angels of light. Or what's the one thing Satan cannot do? Be humble. Right? And that in itself should be a warning to you that um, humility is the way home. So sort of this first part, I've, this is just kind of a review of when we've been. Jesus walks with us. You, you start to look at the words, Jesus, our compadre, you know, in Latin, with Father who's with us, confidant, somebody we trust who's with us, companion, panis, the word for bread, so our sustenance who's with us. And we wander through uh, the liturgy and we come to church and then Jesus uh, takes us where we go on this beautiful thing from Beekner and all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. So just to point number two, you know, this was sort of last week. What sort of people should we be? Or what does holiness look like? And I've tried to show you um, different ways to address that. It can be follow me, or it can be live according to the Ten Commandments, or Jesus who says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. And so the church has always said to that, this is point number three, thank you very much. The word amen actually means thank you, or I'll have some more, or that's true, or I agree with that. Amen is just a way of saying I'm still in. It's like a little creed. When you say amen, you say, that's all true, let's go to the next thing, right? This is certain, you, you studied the catechism, amen, verily, verily, this is so, right? So what happens is you come to church, even in the midst of whatever you're facing, and the Lord touches you, blesses you, says to follow, walks with you, explains life to you, tells you that he loves you. There's that brilliant quote again from now on page six or seven where Jesus comes in. 
He just wants you to stop thinking ill about yourself. If you can just remember that Jesus says, that now and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, right? If you can hear Jesus saying that to you. So then, um, sort of on you go, and his touch then uh, changes us. So at point number four, right? It's this simple. Jesus has given us things that we cannot get ourselves. And so we're thankful because we have these unearnable, unattainable assets. Jesus has made us rich in a way that we can't make ourselves rich. So from now on at the, at the bottom under point number four, the most important thing you can say about God's love is that God loves us not because of anything we've done to earn that love, but because God in total freedom has decided to love us. At first sight, this doesn't seem to be very inspiring. But if you reflect on it more deeply, this thought can affect and influence your life greatly. Now here's the payoff, and this is so, I just test this. We're inclined to see our whole existence in terms of quid pro quo, this for that. We're used to seeing our whole existence as a trade. So watch the news, read a magazine, check the newspaper, go online. Everything is a trade, this for that, this for that, this for that. We assume people will be nice to us if we're nice to them, that they will help us if we help them, and that they will love us if we love them. And so the conviction is deeply rooted in us that being loved is something that you have to earn. We can scarcely conceive of getting something for nothing. And that is why the church, of course, is so otherworldly, because this is the place where you get something for nothing. Now, uh, a story, right? Because there are always Jesus stories, Luke 7. You know this story. Um, and one of the fun things about reading stories again and again is you can sort of start to pick up the little pieces and then arrange them in a way that you can walk forward. So a Pharisee asked Jesus home to dinner, and Jesus lies down at the table, so it's formal dinner. He's with a Pharisee. Pharisees are good people, but difficult sometimes. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask. So you've seen alabaster, right, and flask, and so you're going to break the top off of this, so there's the cost of the flask. The destruction of what's inside, it all has to be used. So this is full blastness, right? So she brings this alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him, not in front of him, behind him, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them. So here's the trick. Standing, weeping, washing, kissing, anointing. Basic hospitality when you go to somebody's house and the Pharisee doesn't provide any of that. So the, the, the Pharisee, the respectable guy, does nothing that is holy. The woman who's a sinner that does everything that's holy, that's what you're supposed to see in the setup. So the good guy isn't good, and the, um, the bad guy, but the bad guy is. Now when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, then he would know what sort of woman is touching him, for he is a sinner. So if Jesus is a prophet, then he won't like sinners. I don't like sinners, Jesus shouldn't like sinners. Because right? you know Jesus is like me, and at base, that's going to be the problem. And this is our own world. 
We define Jesus in our own image. This Pharisee defines Jesus in his own image. He doesn't let Jesus define him. So Jesus doesn't change the Pharisee into his image. The Pharisee changes Jesus into his image. And the inter interesting thing about Jesus is when you do that to them, to Jesus, he stops. Because the gospel doesn't work by force. I often have had this with students when I taught. You know, you go point number one and point number two. And then if there's resistance sort of, and this happens for pastors too, if there's sort of resistance at point number three, you can't take them any farther. You may have this with employees, people who work for you. It's Jesus, faithful in little, faithful in much. If you're not faithful in little, you don't get to be faithful in much. So you have somebody that you supervise and you say, here's the thing, here's where we're going. And you know, if they stop at point number three and won't go any farther, you're like, ah, I can't help you then. Jesus is very much like that. The woman, he's got all day for her and everything he's got. The Pharisee, he can't help him if he won't play along, if he won't walk on the road to Emmaus, if he won't be joined, if he won't recognize his death, if he won't aim at being holy. Uh, Right? Hey, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Little snarkily, say it, teacher. You're kind of like, Dee. if Jesus comes to your house, don't talk to him that way, okay? <laughs> A banker had two debtors. One owed $500, the other owed $50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the death. Who loves him more? Simon says, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus goes, perfect. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman, when I entered your house, you didn't do any of the things that you do if you're gonna honor somebody. You didn't wash, you didn't greet, you didn't anoint, you didn't honor. You see this woman, when I came to your house, you didn't give me water, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, she's got a lot of sins, but they're all forgiven because she loved much. But he who is forgiven just a little loves just a little. And then Jesus, big exclamation point, turns to this woman whom everybody knows is a sinner, your sins are forgiven. So he turns to her in the presence of big shot holy people and says to her, you're holy. Right? And those who were at table said among themselves, there must be some mistake. <laughs> he certainly was looking at me when he said that. Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, faith, you're amen, you're, I'll have some more, you're nothing but given to, right? Your amen, your faith, your agreement to save you, you can go forward in peace. And of course, with peace comes hope, and with hope comes joy, and with joy comes obedience, and everything's going to be okay. Right? And so, um, you know, we should think about that uh, ourselves. And there's so many things to learn from this. Um, maybe for us, as we start, is just this notion, point eight, of everybody knows. We, we live in a world where everybody knows everything, right? The answers are obvious. And if you don't agree, you're just dumb or worse. In fact, you can't even play anymore. 
This is, I mean, these are, you know, this is where fascism and totalitarianism meet. When people who are elite tell people who are not elite that they can't play, can't live, are gone. So we should always be skeptical of what everybody knows. Um, this Oswald Chamber quote that stuck with me from when I was young, there's always one fact in another guy's story that we don't know. So um, I'm going to turn the page because there's so much here, but I'm just going to sort of turn the page and say, um, we should just be careful about deciding who's sinful and who's not. You know, the basic, uh, what's interesting about our world now is that, that sin is um, so raw and so obvious. And also kind of concomitant with that is that forgiveness is now seen as a weakness or even as an unjust response. So to forgive somebody, to let them off the hook is an injustice rather than a justice. You can, I mean, the world couldn't be more anti-Christ than that. So when Jesus meets a sinner, he forgives. When, sin, when, when we meet a sinner, we don't forgive. That's what they deserve. And of course, the basic distinction then of the law and the gospel. The law is you get, you get what you deserve, uh, and the gospel is you get what Christ deserves. Remarkable stuff. And this, of course, is where your nervousness can then begin to pop up. Because if you pay attention to Jesus, you become more and more alien to the world. You know, there, were, there have been centuries where Christians were persecuted. There have been centuries where Christians were welcomed. There have been centuries where Christians ruled with power and didn't look much different than the sinners. But, you know, we're slipping toward a time where it's very, very, um, it's becoming more difficult to be a Christian. We're slipping toward these times. And, you know, choices will have to be made. Um, I thought of Kleinig yesterday. There was a, somebody was made the, um, this is how dangerous it is to be here. I was Australian football, I know you keep up. Um, somebody was made the new head of the new club in Melbourne. He lasted one day. They found out that he went to a local um, church and they, uh, he was chair, he's chair of the local church, so Mike was be careful. Um, and then they found a sermon from his pastor from 12 or 13 years ago where he didn't sort of toe the party line on um, homosexuality and abortion and such. The guy lasted one day. It's a dream job. And they gave him the choice of, you can resign. This would be like, resign being coach of the Bears, or you can resign from being chairman of your congregation, your choice. The guy's like, I'm going to be the chairman of my congregation. Huh. Very interesting, right? So it's coming, it's coming right at you, and you can see it more and more. There are all sorts of little things. I could give you a thousand... Um, examples from people who call me about what's happening in their workplace and you know but it's coming at you so you're going to be okay though because sort of at point 10 the only real honor is Jesus honor for you right and so if you're committed to this if you say um, I'm actually not here very long you know as the scriptures say you get 80 years that's a pretty good run don't expect too much more it's a sadness if you don't make it that far. It's a miracle if you make it more than that. But you're going to get a run. 
you know, from 60, 70, 80 years, but that's a relatively short time. And your life is meant to be lived in holiness. And the only way you get holiness is to go to church because church is the place where Jesus lives and Jesus then touches you and talks to you and makes you just like him. He makes you holy. And if you just stick with it, you will figure out like the saints of Sebaste, for example, or Jesus himself on the cross, you will figure out that holiness is the way home. And your 60 or 70 or 80 years that you live is a very small slice compared to this eternal bliss before the face of God. And so this is, you know, your chance for obedience. This is your chance for discipline. This is your chance for holiness. This is your chance for joy. And all those things become synonyms. This woman who's completely, completely rejected comes to Jesus and does the right thing despite all the opposition. In fact, she does all the things that nobody else will do. How much, how much more similar could that be even here where you live, right? How much more similar could that be? So she's a sinner and she does all the things that she's meant to do. And then Jesus says, she's the one. And everybody else is sort of brushed aside. And, you know, we should learn from this. We see how easily people are brushed aside in our own, not just coaches, but, you know, politicians and judges and, you know, people on the news. I mean, people get for, brushed aside all the time for saying a holy thing. But you have to sort of say, this is a little like looking at your own death. You look at your own death and say, it's all going to be okay. You look at your own life, even when it dies, you sort of say, it's okay. You're denied these things or these possibilities don't come to you. And I'm only speaking here about for the sake of Christ and his holiness, not for other things that are unfair or other people's whims. Just for that though, it's actually going to be okay. As Jesus says, you know, that reward will come in this life or certainly in the next. And so for this woman too, everybody's against her. They made it clear she wasn't welcome. And she's the only one who does the right thing. Everybody knows, says the text, she shouldn't be there, except for her and Jesus, because they're simpatico. She and Jesus are the same person. She's a sinner, and he's a sinner too, because he absorbs her sins. The Pharisee isn't wrong. When Jesus touches her, when he talks to her, he becomes sinful. He absorbs her sins. I watched my very first year her. I remember a very nice couple from the congregation quit the congregation because I preached on the text, Jesus is the greatest sinner who ever lived, right? He who knew not sin became sin for us. Jesus is the biggest sinner there ever was because you're not, right? Because he absorbs your sins. He's like a sponge, pulls them right out of you. And so this woman goes away, as the text of it says, justified or holy or as a friend of Jesus, which is precisely the same thing that happens to you when you go to church. Now the payoff for us is um, not just that this happens to us, but that we can make it happen to other people. So I'm all the way at 11, showing you that I don't need an outline See? They get home, it's fire season, you'll need kindling too. So, um, you know, what is this? 
we probably should talk, you know, maybe in a week or two, we probably should talk about Jesus who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, became flesh and blood, and suffered. We probably should talk about that. But look at this progression. This woman who's dead becomes alive, never forgets that, lives in gratitude, and so humility and goes out as a friend of Jesus, as a disciple of Christ. Jesus, just before he goes to die, you're my friends, says to the disciples. You're my friends. God never talks that way, uh, at least not very often. He talked about that way with Moses and with Abraham, rarely talks that way. But then for the sake of Jesus, he talks that way for you. And if you think about that properly, that can only be humbling. So, um, you know, I didn't put it in here, but if you need um, a short definition, you know, humility is um, spiritual common sense. You can see the way the world works. Uh, it's obvious if you just pay attention, right? So uh, here we go, humility at point 11, and we'll slow down and kind of, kind of just, because this is, it's this virtue that I want to push you toward because it's the hardest one. And if you get it, you get everything, and if you don't get it, you don't get anything. So humility isn't where we start, you know, it's where we end. So here you have this woman who's wounded, but very sorry, right? And Jesus loves her and forgives her. So humility, now this is for you and for me, if you're chasing humility, and you should, um, humility starts with a good confession, which is to say, um, I'm wrong, or I'm sinful, or I'm unholy, or there are things wrong with me, or I'm broken, or I'm disobedient, right? So in some sense, uh, the, great, the great example for the woman is, you know, kissing Jesus' feet. So in the Middle East, you know, um, feet are considered unclean. If you sit and cross your legs, um, if you sit, just find an example, see you're also respectful of me, but if you sit and cross your legs with the sole of your heel, or with the sole of your shoe towards somebody, it's a mark of offense. It's like, you know, other marks of offense that we offer people. Uh, Right? And so here is this woman who goes uh, to Jesus' feet, which are the most offensive things about him, and she weeps and kisses and anoints. Right? She treats his feet. She treats the most offensive part of Jesus as if it was the greatest moment of her life. He's just as a sidebar. You don't have to go too far then to somebody else, like Mother Teresa, who would go to the poor, uh, the sick, uh, the dispossessed, and in them see Jesus, right? It's just a very small step to that. So this woman, in her humility, um, whatever Jesus is, I'm lower than that. And, you know, you have from St. Benedict kind of toward the bottom. The first degree of humility is prompt obedience. What does Jesus ask you to do? He asks you to confess your sins. And he asks you to be forgiven. Law and gospel, both things, right? 
He asks you to see in yourself your own sinfulness. When you meet him, you don't meet him as an equal. You meet him as uh, <laughs> one before whom you go face down and you wait for him to resurrect you, to lift you up. So, um, at point number 12, that humility is only possible because Jesus has shown himself to be a man of love. So she's heard about Jesus and perhaps she's met some of Jesus' followers and she realizes that he is the sort of person who would welcome her despite her sins. And you know, now you begin to wonder if we could be the sort of persons that would welcome other people despite their sins. The only way you can do that, of course, is to remember your own sins. If you can only remember that same, same. This person that you disparage, this person that you leave out, this person you don't want to be around, this person against whom you hold a grudge or say something horrible. Jesus loves that person and compared to Jesus, that person is you. So it's only because Jesus has a reputation for mercy, has an affect for mercy. It's the thing from now on that Jesus in his freedom decides to love you for no good reason. Jesus decides to love you even though you're a bum. And so if you're gonna live in the image of Jesus, you love other people even though by your estimation, they're bums. It's terribly, terribly important because that's the love that makes the world go around. That's the thing that runs the church, right? Now, just as a sidebar, you know, the great nervousness in this always is that people then think the world will be standard less. So anything goes, right? I mean, this is a very hard observation to pin on Jesus. Instead, Jesus very adeptly manages being holy and being with sinners at the same time. So even Jesus goes to be with sinners, even though Jesus lets um, this woman, whom everybody hates and wishes wasn't there, even though he lets her touch him, honor him, become his friend, it doesn't mean that Jesus is less than holy. No, she doesn't change Jesus into her. He changes her into him. Right? So he takes the sins out of her and then there are no more sins. And that's where you need to be as well. Um, in your humility, you say, I'm no better than this person, but I will um, honor them and walk with them and be their friend. It's not that we'll go do crime together. It's that we will walk together in holiness. So she honors Jesus by having what he's giving. Right? And the Pharisee then uh, is just the opposite. He, he doesn't show Jesus any honor at all. Jesus will have to earn his honor in that household. And so, in a way, unless you're Middle Eastern, you don't quite see this, but by when Jesus says to him, hey, I came to your house and you didn't give me water to wash up and you didn't give me a kiss to greet me. Uh, you know, you didn't anoint me. All these things were common courtesies in the Middle East. In fact, 
the Pharisee starts with an insult. He treats Jesus and the woman in the same way because he's a proud man and they can, if they can earn them their way to his level, okay. And Jesus, of course, is just the opposite. Jesus is the real one who's holy and he lowers himself to be with that woman. But of course, the real story is that he lowers the story to be with us. You know, we're the woman, that's what you're supposed to see. And Jesus stays Jesus. And so, um, kind of at 15 maybe, the great reversal is that Jesus, when she touches him, Jesus absorbs her sin and he, Jesus honors her and she knows it. So today, you know, as you go into the liturgy, if you can imagine for yourself what we talked about in the previous weeks, that Jesus greets you at the door and that Jesus walks with you and that he doesn't disparage you, that he listens very carefully to you. And you can say whatever you want because he's heard it all before. And um, you can sit down and then he'll explain to you why he loves you and then he'll forgive you for whatever you've done and then he'll nourish you and touch you at the Holy Eucharist. And then he'll say to you, we're still friends, peace be with you and also with you. And then he'll say, you know, Itamissa est, the mass has ended, or out you go, or everything's been done, or I've done all I can do for you. He'll say to you, you're my child, you can have my name, the Lord bless you and keep you, right? And you can go out for another week and you can live like me. You can live in holiness, you can live in humility, you can live as a servant, you can live with purpose. You can live as if your life matters, you can live as if your small life makes a difference. You can live in a way that honors other people who are also created by God. You can live in love, and nobody lives in love. You can live in humility, and everybody lives by power. You can uh, stop worrying about tomorrow and the next day, and let today's own troubles be sufficient for the day. However, you should also know that Collectively, if you live with a bunch of people together in a place that we call church, remarkable things happen and joy flourishes and everybody feels together and you can have like-minded people and suddenly you find this is beautiful, this is wonderful, this is lovely, this is different, this is welcoming, this is life, right? That's, that's what's going on here. That you can be part, that's the reason you come to church. And this, of course, is what the woman sees. Even if nobody else sees it, she's the one who sees it. And so um, you sort of carry on. I've tried, to, I've tried to give you at point 17 a way to kind of just walk through the parable, okay? And the reason I've done it in this way is that you should think about yourself in this very same way. So, so this is as simple as I can, I can make it. Jesus is love incarnate, right? Adam falls. The Father looks at the Son and says, what should, looks at the Holy Spirit and says, what should we do? Jesus says, I'll go. The Holy Spirit nods along. The Father sends him. And so Jesus born of Mary. Jesus is love incarnate. And Jesus joins us, the road to Emmaus, and he loves us. And when we're loved, if you've been really loved really well by anybody just once, it's the most humbling experience that people love you in spite of yourself. And being humbled, then we say, ah, it's so obvious I have done wrong and could do better. But of course, love forgives, and for that we're grateful. And then we follow along and we never forget. 
And so we don't make the same mistakes again. You know, basic rule of life. Don't let one mistake become two. And in that obedience, you find like-minded people. And when you do that, that is the body of Christ. Right? So maybe enough for today. But, um, and that seems, even when I say it, it seems very complicated. So it must seem like a mystery to you. But um, it's, it's really quite simple. You were meant for holiness. Jesus wants to restore that holiness. He chooses to restore that holiness in church through his word and sacraments. And when he gives you these gifts, he changes your life. His love resurrects you. And for that resurrection, you're grateful. And gratitude breeds humility and joy and obedience and love. And we live together in the image of Christ. This is the Christian life. There isn't any other Christian life. This is it. All there is is the life that Jesus brought us, okay? All right, we should pray. I'll see you next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you next week.